I think what we need to do is explain how our principles of free speech, free inquiry, will help serve the cause of justice. The First Amendment, the constitutional freedom of speech and freedom of conscience that is the bulwark of our democracy. There was a passion in what was being said, affirming this, this what people consider a sacred constitutional right, freedom of speech and freedom of association. From the UC National Center for Free Speech and Civic Engagement, this is Speech Matters, a podcast about expression, engagement, and democratic learning in higher education. I'm Michelle Deutschman, the Center's Executive Director and your host. By tackling the challenges arising on college and university campuses, we highlight how each of our voices is important and why speech matters. Welcome to episode two. Today, we'll be chatting with Danya Matos, UC Berkeley's Vice Chancellor for the Division of Equity and Inclusion, about being targeted online because of her work and her identity, and how universities can support staff and academics that find themselves in similar situations. But first, class notes, a look at what's making headlines. Much coverage over the past few weeks has been devoted to free speech surveys. A Florida law passed in 2019 requires state public universities to survey students and faculty members' political beliefs annually, beginning this year. Many opposed the survey, including Florida's statewide faculty union, which sued to enjoin the surveys from being distributed. They argued that the surveys function as political litmus tests and ultimately violate faculty's First Amendment rights. A federal district court judge was unconvinced, and the survey was released earlier this month. The union, however, is urging that students and faculty not participate. There was a similar kerfuffle at University of Wisconsin over a different survey that solicited student perceptions of campus free speech. Ultimately, the dissemination of the Wisconsin survey was postponed because of backlash, including the surprise resignation of an interim chancellor who had raised concerns about the survey, as well as other questions surrounding the survey's funding. All of this serves as further disheartening evidence of how legislators and outside groups are successfully co-opting higher education as part of the culture wars. It seems that last month's controversies over invited speakers were not an anomaly. There has been much back and forth about former Vice President Pence's visit to University of Virginia in mid-April. While the talk went forward without incident, I found an editorial by the board of the Cavalier Daily, UVA's independent daily news organization, to be concerning. The piece argued that hateful rhetoric is violent and therefore a platform should be denied to anyone espousing such rhetoric, including Pence. While it is true that words can be harmful, deciding to censor speech based on that assessment, a subjective one, is a dangerous way to decide who can be heard. Surely we will have more opportunities to discuss this, but now it's time to turn to our focus today, leading with love in the face of targeted harassment. Today's featured guest is Dania Matos, the Vice Chancellor for the Division of Equity and Inclusion at the University of California, Berkeley. Dania started in this role in August 2021 after serving as the inaugural Associate Chancellor and Chief Diversity Officer at the University of California, Merced. A lawyer by training, Dania served in the Virginia Public Defender's Office before transitioning to higher education. Over the past decade, she's led equity and inclusion work in the private, nonprofit, and government sectors. 
Donia and I had the pleasure of connecting two years ago when she and her team at Merced received a Center Voice Award to host the university's first free speech week, which was organized around the theme, Can Speech Truly Ever Be Free? Since then, she's been an ardent supporter of the center, and we recently featured her in an installment of our Ask the Experts on how to ensure free expression and diversity and inclusion on campus. Danya has generously agreed to join us today to discuss her experience being targeted online as a result of her work and her identity. Danya, I appreciate your willingness to talk with us and share your story. Thank you so much, Michelle, for the opportunity and the platform. I'm really honored to be here with you. Just for some background for our listeners, I learned about Danya's experience while collaborating on the creation of a resource guide for academics at University of California, Irvine, who've been targeted online. UCI's Chancellor Howard Gilman, who happens to also be one of the amazing co-chairs of the center's National Advisory Board, noticed this taking place more frequently, and he asked the center and the campus council's office to create a resource to support academics who find themselves targeted online. While putting this together, I started hearing not only from faculty, but also from staff who have been targets as well. And that in turn led me to Danya and her experience. But before we turn to the events of this past December, Danya, I want to ask if we can go back in time a little bit further. Can you start by telling us what drew you to diversity, equity, and inclusion work? Wow, I love back in time. It's probably into my mother's womb, Michelle. I always uh, share sort of the most important parts of my bio are that I was born and uh, raised by a single mom who ensured that I knew that I was inheriting a struggle and that I had a responsibility to do something about the world that I was inheriting. And that's something that really stuck with me, you know, as a child. So before this work was actually named that, I think it was really embedded into who I am and how I approach the world. You know, I think law was a career that... I picked because I knew I had a big mouth <laughs> and I had to pick a career that would um, you know, help me with that advocacy um, piece and get into some good trouble, as we like to say. And so as this work started formulating both in you know, the creation of the positions of chief diversity officers and all those things, for me, the thread was really of where can I be of value and in service and where can I create the most impact? And so this work is work that you know, is deeply embedded into who I am. And as I navigated private, public, nonprofit sectors, particularly you mentioned the federal public defense world, and really thinking about systemic oppression, right? And how it shows up in every single one of those spaces. And the thread of my clients' stories was mostly no one saw the greatness in them or asked them to step into it, and that they were confronting of systems that were built not for them, but to, you know, incarcerate them or to keep them in, you know, lack of access and opportunities. And so I kept thinking of, you know, how could I make it where I'm not celebrating one less day day in jail or one less sentencing guideline, but I'm truly celebrating anti-oppression and freedom. And so I thought about higher education, right? And the power it has for that. Although it's also a system that we are truly trying to create and build for all, and so the, the trajectory made perfect sense to me. I always tell people your journey only needs to make sense to you. Because as I was coming into this work, you know, most people were, including my own family, right? What is that? What's a vice chancellor for equity and inclusion? What does that mean? You know, you're leaving a government job. <laughs> and so, so much of that for me was saying, no, this is, this is where I want to make an impact. And this is kind of what's calling my purpose at that same time and ensuring that 
I'm really being of service and value in the different spaces I navigate. And so the work is in me. <laughs> there, I, there was no drawing to, there's really no separation for me. That is really beautiful. And when you said that it probably started in the womb, I wanted to laugh out loud, except we're not supposed to do that. So that was already a very inspirational and wise answer. And I can definitely relate to the journey thing. When I left a big firm, I think everyone was like, what? You're leaving a firm to go to a nonprofit? It's like, I wish I had known what you knew, which was the journey only needs to make sense to me. So as we move towards through your journey, one of the things that really spoke to me in your bio is you state, Danya leads with vision and love, centering people and community first and creating change through collective wisdom. And I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about this philosophy and how you elevate it in your actual day-to-day work. Absolutely. I, when I think about that, Michelle, I think of that, the, the whole, what the world needs now is love sweet love. And love is a a word that we don't use in our professional spaces enough, right? And we certainly use it, don't use it in higher ed. And one of the things I I really sort of think about is I'm from Puerto Rico. And for uh, those of you who don't know, it's still a commonwealth of the United States, right? And in my undergrad career, I studied the colonial subjectivity, right? And that individual nature of approach on life is really a colonial approach, Right. And so as we think about collective wisdom and whose expertise we're valuing and knowledge, it's really from this collective standpoint, which is more culturally how I grew up in Puerto Rico. And so in my own experience and my own sort of identities and the way I show up, it's really shifting that from that individual colonial perspective to real, really that collective good and that collective wisdom. And the fact that we all have something to contribute, and it's not always associated to the letters behind your names, right? Including this, this is coming from someone who has them. And so I really thinking about how you really show up and affirm everyone's full humanity, right? And we talk about authenticity and authenticity being intentional for me, because when I show up authentically, it's a mirror for other people to show up authentically as themselves and they see themselves reflected in that. And so that's been really powerful for me. You know, I have those moments where I think about, oh, do I wear this? Do I say this? And then I always sort of step into the yes, because we need to shift the narratives of what these roles look like or what the approaches look like and make room for everyone. So for me, centering people and community first is really centered in that, right? And bringing all that collective knowledge and experience and not just from you know, a publication standpoint, but that access to knowledge, which we all have to give and the expertise that really comes from living our own lives. We are experts of our own journey. And so for me, it's, it's really doing that and approaching the work from that collectivist perspective and also, you know, having the work embedded into who I am and that authentic reciprocity. When I think about, you know, institutions of higher ed, I think about how this is heart work too, and not just head work. So really bringing that, that heart and that humanity. Um, we are not just the work we do, right? We are, we are people too. And if there's a time we've, we've learned that had certainly has been navigating not only the pandemic, but the racial reckoning in this country. And in some ways, I think we forgot that, right? And we got a little bit away from that and life has forced us to and do that and, and reimagine and rethink things. So when I say lead with love, it's, it's truly that centering people first and allowing and creating spaces to allow their full humanity, which 
For so many of us as first-generation equity practitioners, it's really thinking about how do we create structures to remake practice, right? We've got 400 plus years <laughs> of stuff that we've been doing. And so how do we remake that, right? And, and practice that and really center humanity. So for me, it's telling people I love them, right? And, and showing it in my work. That is really beautiful. And even as you're talking, it's making me think about all the times when I probably suppressed not just love, but sort of affection and warmth and authenticity, thinking that like in order to seem professional, those kinds of feelings and emotions sort of be hidden and sort of wanting to fight against that. But then every once in a while having someone say, oh, you need to seem a little more serious as if that is, you know, the arbiter of what success is. So thanks for helping to free all of us a little bit. And I also want to say you are the first person on this podcast to sing. And you just told me that we might need a, we might need a, theme song for this podcast, and it might be you. So I'm imagining that you come from a singing background. Is that right? I'd be, I'd be so honored. Oh my gosh, I started laughing and, and, and smiling. I was on Broadway when I was younger, Michelle. And funny story, um, you know, my mom, I was about 12 years old. So credit to my mom, that amazing mom that I talked about. But she said, you can choose this or school, but you can't choose this. And of course, I thought I was being given a choice. And I'm like, of course I go to school. And so when I finished law school, she's like, oh, you can go on back to Broadway now. And of course, I was like, mom, I just told her I'd promise her a dramatic life. And if you ask her, I definitely have delivered <laughs> in so many spaces and places. But to your point of, of questioning, it still happens, right? I had that split second decision of, oh, I'll tell you a story. You know, I used to resist wearing the color red for the longest time, particularly as someone who identifies as Latina, right? Where... I thought about the exotification and all those things. And I said, you know what? I look good in red. <laughs> red is my color. And I, I, I remember I used to have this red power suit. Man, I won so many things in that suit. So now I not only not resist red, but the color palette in my closet is nice and bright and very authentic to who I am from the Caribbean. And so I really encourage you all to, you know, show up authentically as yourselves. And I would be happy to record the theme song to this. I knew I heard a professional voice. So anyway, that's amazing. Part of me is like, wait, now I want to talk about Broadway, but we're going to stay focused on this particular strand of your journey. Obviously, you um, an incredible trailblazer. And one of the things that really struck me is that you've served not just once, but twice as the inaugural chief diversity officer, first at the College of William and Mary, and then at UC Merced. And I'm curious, what was it like to chart a course in a place without a roadmap, so to speak? And maybe you could detail some support you have, maybe some of the resistance you might have met. Yeah, I've, I've been reflecting on this a lot because my role as Berkeley is the first non-inaugural role I've had, right? So it's been giving me some time to think about what it means to be first. And when they say the professional mimics real life, right? I'm the eldest in my family. I was the first in my family to do a lot of things. So it's not on accident that I had these sort of first inaugural roles. I'll tell you what was exciting about it or what is exciting about it is you get to set the standard, the tone, and really build, right? Um, not to say that there isn't stuff, but when you think about, you know, being inaugural at these institutions, you know, William and Mary's second oldest institution after Harvard, and then UC Merced was kind of like a jump in time to 15, 16 years old now. So for me, it was thinking about what is the, the legacy that I'm planting? What is the sustainable structure that I want to build out? And it was kind of like a nice palette 
clear palette. And for those of you who are artistically inclined, right, I am not much of a painter. I think I'd still do the paint by numbers, but there was a certain freedom with that that came. And knowing that what you set the tone for really will continue on, right? And you want to build things that are going to last and have an impact for centuries to come. And so I wouldn't say there was resistance, right? But I think that when you are the first in a role or creating something from the ground up, it really is on you to help define that and build the partnerships to help build and shape that. So in some ways, some some folks don't know what to give you or what you need. And so luckily, another theme in my life is being a demand for what you need, right? I learned that navigating my academic career where I would see some of my classmates you know, go to the professor and say, sorry, I can't take the exam on that time. I'm going to be vacationing. And that's not the way I grew up. And I was like, oh, wow, you can be a demand for what you need and ask those things. And so that comes up for me. And so learning to be a demand, what I needed in those roles was really important, but not necessarily what I needed in my role, but what the institution needed, what the community needed. And from a place that was serving them from where they are and what they need and not making assumptions of what that was. So again, that collaborative process that we talked about before in building out those roles, I went on listening tours on both roles, but also reflecting back for the community, ensuring that I got it right. And those listening tour reports and strategies what built out the structure. And I go back and I'm so proud to see the, the seeds you planted or the conversation and the literal blood, sweat and tears that you laid are, are flourishing, right? So I look forward to seeing, you know, UC Merced many years down the line. I won't live to see the hundreds of years it'll be in existence, but also sort of William and Mary and all of that. So very supportive. I think people for the most part are very excited about helping you build and grow something and really invested in success. Resistance less so in those places, but coming from a place of only thinking about it in one way, right? And, and, and not coming at it from a place of possibility or, you know, you don't know what you don't know in these roles. So to those weighing whether or not to come into inaugural role, I would encourage them to do so because it's incredibly rewarding and exciting and so full of possibilities. I can really relate to that. I mean, the center is different than um, an inaugural kind of vice chancellor position, but I do remember a colleague saying to me to think of it like seeds and that you're just throwing out as many seeds as possible and some of them are going to grow and some of them are going to flourish and it's going to take time and, you know, you just have to sort of wait. And I've really tried to remember that. And in the four years, um, I can look back and, and feel like, okay, yes, we're growing. And now another branch on our tree is this podcast. So I really resonate with that. And, you know, I know you know this about me, Danya. I'm a Cal Bear, graduated 1997. My dog is named Berkeley. I met my husband at Cal. So I have to ask you a Cal question, which is, you know, what is your vision? Is there a specific vision you have um, for moving forward in your Berkeley role, um, especially given that there have been, you know, some shoulders that you've gotten to stand on and you're not the first? I love that, Michelle. I did not know all those Berkeley connections. So go Bears, even more excited Um, I knew I I liked you. I just like you even more now. (laughs) So, you know, Berkeley, wow, it's been, it's been an interesting eight months. You know, I started my role during COVID. And so in many ways, still making my way around navigating meeting 60,000 people (laughs) that we serve, Um, you know, certainly starting with a division. This is the largest division I've led of about 180 people. And as someone who's very much a sort of reach out and connect with people, 
it's something I've been missing, right? And so being intentional about how much and how I do that. So one of the things we're really working on is the division I lead at Berkeley started in 2007, and it was the first in the system. And so for me, it's thinking about what's the next phase, right? What does it look like? How can Berkeley continue to shape the vision of diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and justice strategy, not only across the UC, but across the state and frankly, with the platform we have across the world. And that's been so exciting. For me, it's around a Berkeley thriving framework, right? So what does it mean to thrive at Berkeley? I came across a really great Dr. Maya Angelou quote today, which said, my mission in life is not merely to survive, but to thrive and to do so with some passion, some compassion, some humor, and some style. And that really spoke to me, right? Thinking about that passion that so many of our faculty, staff, and students bring to Berkeley and our research excellence. And what would it mean to have thriving excellence, right? We're a campus that is, you know, I lead a division that serves formerly incarcerated students, undocu scholars, right? Folks that are really navigating all these structures that weren't built for them. So what would it mean to affirm their humanity and really build it as a place that thrives? And so in terms of accomplishing that, right, really building out, again, that sustainable structure, while it's not an inaugural approach, the role, the approach is the same And thinking about how do we really create, recreate, have folks think about it in a different way and really think about transformation and not just change, right? Things change every day, but if we truly want things to transform, we can't go back to the way things were, especially COVID forced us to do that and we're still in it. <laughs> and I think this back to business and as usual is a misstep, right? We have the opportunity to pause, reflect. I often tell my division, rest is a right, right? So how do we really build Berkeley as a place where folks are really thinking about wellness in all those aspects? So academically, professionally, holistically, in all those different places and personally, and we're inviting that in. You know, if we, if we were a culture that rewarded doing less, I feel like we might be at a better place sort of on that thriving framework, but it's do more, more, more. And that's sort of, you know, natural <laughs> to folks who are high achieving and excelling. But that moment to pause and that intentional reflection is certainly something I want to accomplish. I started my tenure here on a listening tour around the themes of truth-telling, trust, and transformation. And so really building... Berkeley, a place where truth telling can happen and it's cultivated with trust and transformation where we all lead with love. That is wonderful. And part of me is a little bit sad to kind of be moving away from this discussion of sort of your career trajectory generally and sort of move to this targeting that happened to you. And I don't know whether you would actually articulate it as being transformative. I certainly know that it had an impact on you. I do want to use this podcast as an opportunity for you to share what happened to you. And I think I just want to ask you, you know, have you ever been targeted online before because of your work or your identity? And can you just share with the listeners, you know, what happened and why um, they were pointing the finger at you? Thank you, Michelle. It's, I had to think about this a little bit. Um, and no, I had not been targeted before, but I did talk about this incredible Berkeley platform that drew me here, right? And it's also the same platform that I think put me on that visibility uh, for that targeting. I think when you're standing and advocating and creating space for others to speak for themselves, there's a, a misconstruing, right, that can happen. 
And so let me let me talk about what happened and then t- kind of talk about sort of the framing of it. So I was, you know, checking my email. I have a general email account from my office as well. And I started seeing some very sort of vulgar language in the subject lines. And there were about three or four at the time. And I opened it up and a lot of them were an attack on my identity as a woman of color, my identity as a Latina. Some were commenting that I made too much money and I couldn't piece together where it was coming from, right? It was certainly outside emails in my head. I'm like, well, what did I do, right? I'm just getting started here. (laughs) And so I um, have Google alerts, uh, both for the university and my name. So when it comes up, however, I have the digest version. So at the end of the day, I'll get it. And sure enough, at the end of the day, I got an alert with my name that was connected to an article on Breitbart with my picture. It had uh, my salary and it was connected to a tweet that had gone out by one of the key architects of the anti-critical race theory movement, who pretty much was not okay with who I was, the amount of money I'm making, and um, likened my work to critical race theory, which if they had looked it up, (laughs) they would see the distinctions in scholarly pieces. So the reactions to that were everyone who was sort of reading that article and decided to reach out to me and, and take it out on me in very hostile, toxic ways. It was, you know, that sense of lack of psychological safety or physical safety and thinking about how vile this has gotten, especially in the zeitgeist that we're in. And, you know, really having to treat this as serious because especially in these times, we can't dismiss these things. I think the hate in our country has just increased. Um, Frankly, maybe with the move online, the lack of understanding, the lack of absolutely being able to connect, the idea that giving to one group is taking away from another and without understanding the systems that are promulgating that. And so it was one of those things prior to that, I'd had a shorter piece where I was doing an event on campus and again, it got misconstrued and I was in a, you know, on a website, but it did not precipitate the amount of emails that I got from this. And so it was nearing the end of the semester where I was already really exhausted And really, it was one of those spaces of like, oh, gosh, not this. And what do I do about it? Well, that was going to, you're leading me right to my next question, which is, you know, what did you do and how did you know what to do? I felt like I stared at the screen for a very long time, Michelle. I really froze, right? Because I couldn't, one, I couldn't believe that someone would take time out of their day to just spew this hate to someone else who they did not know. Two, I very much started kind of looking at my immediate surroundings. And then I started saying, well, is there anything on campus? Where do I go? Like, what do I even Google, right? Targeting online. And I reached out to my interim chief of staff, shout out to all chiefs of staff out there, really critical role and kind of shared with them what was happening. And they connected me to talk to someone else, right? Who connected me to someone else. And there were a lot of sort of emails and, and going back and forth. I, of course, reached out to, to my boss to say what was happening. At the same time, I was supposed to, uh, like my family was supposed to come to my space and I decided against it and had to pivot plans quickly and went you know, to sort of where they are so that I could keep them safe. So this idea that 
my presence close to them would bring harm or close to anyone at the end of the year when we're supposed to be celebrating the end of the year and all of those things was really hard. And in some ways I isolated myself because I did not want to bring danger to anyone else. And as someone who's such a people person and community connected, that was one of the hardest part about it. In one of my connections, they asked me to sort of reach out to UCPD. And I feel like my lawyer skills came in very handy. I also reached out to my team. I think that process of thinking of how do I care for myself at this moment when you know I'm not doing that? And part of that was knowing that I could not stay in that inbox because more and more emails were coming in. And even though you learn that you know they don't mean anything, you're still a human being and you're still sort of reading these things about you. And I'll say, they wrote things to me that as a female identifying that I don't think they would write to someone who was male identifying, right? From body, all those different things. Um, just really, really hateful and vile. And so for me, it was, how do I care for myself? And so I sent my team an email. I was also really transparent with my team and shared what I was navigating again. And that authenticity, there were tears involved right? Um, I was very transparent about, you know, safety and feeling like scared. And I asked them to meet, right? And come up with a plan. Because I always think about how can I turn into what's happening to me for good? And how can I make sure this doesn't happen to anybody else? Or that they know like the community they have or the resources they have. And so my team is phenomenal um, and came up with some ideas. And so my comms communications director at the time started going through the emails and also helped navigate some of the information that the police department needed, right, to pursue things. Um, And so copy pasting, but also ensuring that um, they were taking some of the labor so that I could care for myself. I called my family, uh, that mom that I spoke of and my grandmother and siblings, and they were outraged. They were so upset. I think mom especially went into protective mode and you know, wanting to know who, what, when, where, why. So I think my going home, you know, where she could physically see me and ensure I was safe was also really important to do that. And so for me, it was, you know, one of those sort of collective at the same times, but really trying to center how do I take care for my of myself in this moment and give myself to pause and reflect. I also reached out to our um, employee wellness and well-being and had a really good talk with them, you know, in terms of like, what are the resources available and, and all of those things. But these were all additional meetings that, you know, in a schedule that I was already jam-packed. And so the priority was really like, hey, pause, reset. We were coming up to a break in school. And so I, I, I just said, let me get all the information I need so that I can think about what the next steps are going to be for me. It's really incredible that at such a difficult moment, you had the presence of mind to reach out to the resources that you have. You know, that's what the resource I think I told you that I was putting together. You did all of the things that you're supposed to do, right? Which is to ask somebody else to vet your voicemail messages or your inbox and to reach out for support and help other people you know, get information and help keep you um, secure. And, you know, earlier, Danya, you talked about, you know, trust, transformation, and truth-telling, which was your listening tour. And I think that the next T is transparency, um, which is what you talked about, which is that people might not have been able to support you if you hadn't been transparent about what had happened and the impact that it was having on you. And you revealed to me the intense emotional and physical toll that this took. 
And you also mentioned that this type of experience is leading people to leave student-facing and public-facing jobs in the university. There was a, a large piece in the Chronicle of Higher Education recently about student affairs folks basically fleeing the profession. And I'm wondering, what can universities, from your perspective, be doing so that they're better prepared to support staff and faculty that find themselves the focus of these types of campaigns? Because you, you weren't the first and you certainly won't be the last. One of the things that was most striking about this experience, Michelle, is that I did not realize how many people were suffering in silence. And by that, I mean that the more I shared my story, the more others reached out to me through different avenues to tell me they had gone through something similar or that they were currently navigating something. And I was shocked. I was also realizing that they didn't feel like they had the space to talk about it. And I really wanted to lift up how, especially if in your, you're in the work of diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and justice now, which frankly, in my opinion, should be everyone. <laughs> this is something that is now becoming a part of it and it shouldn't be, right? So when I think about what universities can do is, is much of what you did, right? Having a space or platform or some guidelines or a one pager, right? That this is where you go for the resources and this is So these are some steps to do, but also having that be part of the onboarding or checking in in all of those spaces. I learned that some of our students have navigated this when they run for certain positions on campus, and they also did not know where to go and what to do, right? Particularly if it's, let's say, a body that's not necessarily covered by the institution. So I think one of the places having a a centralized place and hub, and even if it's different for students, faculty, community and frankly, maybe even alumni, right, who are in positions, uh, you know, involved with the institution, it would be important to have that. Also thinking about how they can take the labor, right? It's the same system of how to not have the survivor thinking about their own care, but really creating support systems so they can go and talk to you know, I, I was given a lot of resources and I was inundated, but all of it fell on me to reach out and kind of do that outreach. So thinking about what is, you know, when this happens, what are the things we do, right? Do we offer to remove them from their space and pay for a night in a hotel or something? You know, do we, you know, automatically set things up for them, right? Even if I don't take advantage of it, knowing that it's there and would take away from all the things I had to think about and do, so even that, you know, I, I put together, well, what do I need in this moment or right now? Um, and then gave it to my team to come together around it was really important because I was, you know, walking, looking behind my back. Uh, I remember that same evening I had to go to campus to meet with some of my team and they were like, did you walk here by yourself? Let us walk you to your car. Like I hadn't even thought about that. Right. So um, offering that transportation from wherever they're going and navigating and that physical safety, right? I Bodyguard, security, all those different things because we do have to treat this as serious right now. And so as much as possible, thinking about what, what are the things that I can take off, the labor I can take off this person that's navigating this so they could really just pause to curl up and cry or think about what they need or make a list or frankly just breathe and sleep and rest and all those different things that you don't think about in the moment. 
Right. I mean, you're talking about a redistribution of labor, right? And it's sort of very uniquely American, right, that we expect that people are going to be able to manage all kinds of situations. I mean, everything from, you know, professionally and and motherhood, you know, on their own. Um, And what you're really talking about is looking through a different paradigm, which is one where the person who's being targeted isn't the one that's also, you know, paddling with the oar. I guess one of my questions for you, Danya, as someone who's been in DEI work for you know a long time now, if you were going to talk to someone who was entering the field and they asked you, you know, is this part of the job? Is this what I I should expect? Is that I might be targeted because of who I am or um, the things I believe in? How would you answer that? And, and what do you say to people who may you know feel a little bit reticent to enter positions where visibility is very tremendous? Thanks, Michelle. I wanted to go back to your point earlier because you made me think that whole like we're making you responsible for your own care. Um, and I think you said very American is that whole individual approach that we talked about before versus what I'm talking about is that collective thing. So there in case in point again is another example of how we need to shift it right from that colonized uh, individual pull yourself up by your bootstraps to this collective care and community of when it impacts one of us, it impacts all of us. So to shift that to your, your current question around getting into this work, I wish it wasn't, right? I wish it wasn't part of the work. And certainly this is the first time I navigated it in such a visible, large scale of a way. And I remember the my immediate reaction was, again, to take care of myself and my family and connect with my team and be transparent about what's going on. But the second piece of it, you know, this happened right on the heels of Bell Hooks passing. And uh, as I was navigating this, someone sent me one of their quotes, which was, you know, they don't want your power to exist, right? Um, They're not afraid because of your power. They just don't want it to exist. And I remember thinking about that and really grounding myself in, no, I'm going to keep going because what they want is for me to cower, right? And, And they want me to stop. And I have an incredible privilege and platform to lead at an institution like Berkeley. And that's the reason we're going to keep going because we are committed to this and they're scared, right? And and like I said, I haven't even really gotten started. So just you wait. And at the same time, I had to think about what are the things I need to put in place as we move forward in that thriving commitment, as we move forward in transforming our campus communities in the world. And so For me, it was, okay, how do I continue to build out those support systems? Frankly, here, how do we get those guide sheets and things done for others at Berkeley so that we have them? Now that I've gone through the experience, I know, and I can certainly share with others. So I don't want that to distract anyone from from entering this, but it's also an important piece to be honest about and bring visibility to so that as you are exploring these opportunities, you can ask that of your potential employers, right? Of how do you support folks who have been doxxed, right, online or are targeted online? Uh, What are those pieces? And if they're not in place, encourage that to be in place, or maybe that's not the place, right, for you. So thinking about that, I think knowing is half the battle and then, uh, you know, putting those things in place. But, you know, really having a community that can come together and stand in radical resistance and possibility is so powerful, right? Because one of the things was part of that isolation and caring for myself to get out of that was recognizing that I had a community of people who not only had gone through this, but were also 
rooting me on and, and there to protect myself and my voice and that which was happening. And so I tell folks to go in, you know, sort of knowing that, but also knowing that you are incredibly powerful and, you know, who you are and who you're being really is going to transform the world. And so really encouraging that and right, preparing yourself for all those different pieces. I was already someone who naturally, you know, loves all those cameras <laughs> and all those things. And I only think I, I got more in knowing about the research and, and what's out there, uh, which is possible. Right. I was thinking about that. You bring, you know, to this work and obviously to this experience so much of, um, you know, a lifetime of this journey. And I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned students also being targeted um, and they may not have that same presence and certainly don't have the benefit of the years that have passed. And I'm wondering if when you work with students who've experienced this type of online targeting, is there anything in specifically you tell them that you might, that might be different than what you would say to like a colleague, um, for instance? I'm pretty consistent, Michelle, <laughs> and I think that's part of the authenticity of into whom I'm speaking. But I'm certainly am now able to share that I come from a place of knowing and deep empathy with it, and I also kind of share my own processing and how I come to be. Right, that that happens because people are scared, right, and it's not okay. And uh, don't let that sort of have you be afraid of standing up for what you believe in or you know, running for that office or a position. And then structurally thinking about and working with campus partners, right, um, to not make that so and to have there be repercussions for that behavior. One of the hardest things about the online threat piece, especially as an attorney, was, you know, people do that because they think and know that there won't be any repercussions, right? I think the internet and the online world is, you can do that from, you know, hundreds of miles away and not, be that. In my case, that's actually what ended up happening because they were outside of California. I could not pursue, well, I asked to pursue prosecution and they couldn't do it. And so for me, it was more of a matter of principle. There needs to be consequences for, for that behavior. And as a society, uh, shutting that down and saying that is not okay to do to anyone. And so to the students, I just, it's the same, right? They're afraid of your power and you know, you've got a team of people to support you and we're working on, you know, the things that to help in these spaces. I'm really pleased that you said what you did about the law, because I know from my experience as an attorney that one of the hard parts has been realizing the limits of the law. And this is like a perfect example of how this is not something that is going to be able to be remedied by the legal or jurisprudential system. And that's why I think it's so important to be building other kinds of infrastructure. And of course, you know, my hope is that for the center and for this podcast is that it's going to serve to educate and help others. And that it's going to help build community among higher education professionals, many of whom face the kind of challenges that you have faced. And I'm just incredibly grateful to you, Danya, not just because you gave us so much of your valuable time, but because retelling traumatic stories is hard work. And, and I really want to recognize um, your willingness to do that. And I guess I want to give you a chance, um, sort of before we close, is there anything that you want to add that you haven't had a chance to talk about? And then I'll have one final question for you. I just want to thank you too, Michelle. I think that part of when I thought about how do I turn this into a moment of, of power, right? And to ensure this doesn't happen to anyone, it's coming onto a platform like this and being able to talk about it and frankly, either inspiring or encouraging someone 
or maybe having someone refrain from targeting someone else online. This is so much a part of my own healing and in thinking about that. So so thank you. I thought about it, right? And I said, what are the ways to do it? And then your invitation came. So I think that was really powerful. And, and thank you for the opportunity. Well, like you, I feel like I'm just getting started. I feel like this podcast is just the beginning. I think there's lots of possibilities. And I hope that we and the UC system together can continue to create ways to respond. And with that, you know, I always want to bring us back uh, to what the center is about, which is free speech and civic engagement. And I'm wondering if there's one thing that you would suggest to people that they can do today to advance civic engagement or expression from your perspective. Yeah, I think that <laughs> so much of it is going up to, to showing up authentically, right? And, and thinking about intent versus impact, right? Of, of what we say, or what we don't say and who we are and how we show up. So definitely that's come up so much in the course of not only campus life, but every career I've navigated and frankly, every interaction because we're human beings, right? And human beings were made to be in community. So I know this time and season we're in when we're not can feel that way. And frankly, it's moved it onto this online platform, but the same sort of values and ethos apply to that. And so as you're thinking about that, engaging sort of civically and free speeches, how can you infuse leading with love into that space, right? How can you bring heart to that and to those principles? And I think that that's not something that we've lost a little bit of that. So I think we can get back to that. I agree. And I think you're going to inspire people to do just that. And again, I want to thank you. And I want to say to our listeners that in two weeks, we will be back to tackle another challenge. This is a challenge that's facing primary, secondary, and higher education. It's book bans and other attempts by legislators to stifle ideas from being taught and discussed in our classrooms. We'll be joined by Deborah Caldwell-Stone, the Director of the Office of Intellectual Freedom at the American Library Association. And we'll look forward to talking to you then. Thanks again, Danya. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone.